morning. Uh, right up front, I would like to give you four words that kind of sum up today. Enhances, confirms, inspires, and empowers. Enhances, confirms, inspires, and empowers. And I just invite you to kind of like take those four words away with you later, and hopefully they'll kind of act as a spark uh, to what I'm about to, to, to share. Last Sunday, we introduced our new series, as Stephen said, Up, In and Out, and, and using this triangle uh, as a framework, we're looking to explore the importance of our relationship with God, up, our relationship with each other, within these walls, in, and then our relationship with those who are not yet Christians, out. I didn't specifically mention this last week, but, but Jesus lived his life in these three key relationships, up with his father, in with his chosen followers, out with those in the world around him. And so for those of us who, who claim to live in God, according to John, we must then walk as Christ walked. And so we are to love God with our entire being, heart, soul, strength, mind. We're to nurture that vital, vertical relationship with our Father. And our evening series, uh, Rhythm and Rules, is encouraging us in that direction. As we think about what does it look like to write a rule of life for how we nurture our lives with our Father. So we're going to be continuing that series this evening. But as well as loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we are to love one another. Because according to Jesus, it's by our love for one another that this world will know we belong to him. And whenever we say we're to love one another, well, what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean within these walls? Well, then that takes us back to that whole list of things like we're to serve one another, we're to encourage one another, we're to pray for one another, we're to comfort one another, we're to confess our sins to one another, we're to bear with one another, we're to teach and admonish one another, up, in, and then the out dimension, we're to love our neighbor We're even to love our enemies. We are to go and make disciples. We are to be salt and light. Up, in, and out. And by the way, I mentioned last week that we would have these little postcards with this graphic and those three words on them. And I think some people got them coming in this morning. They're available for everybody just to act as a visual reminder during this series. And we are going to read our way through the New Testament book of Acts because as the early church was launched and as it kind of found its feet and grew, they were constantly having to think about and deal with their relationships in these three directions. And so for the next four months, we're going to revisit their story to see, well, what can we learn about how to live and how to relate up, in, and out? So if you have a Bible... Please turn with me to Acts. If everybody could see a copy of God's Word this morning, it's going to be really handy. It's page 1094 in the Pew Bibles. Last week, uh, 
in chapter 1, we, we read how Jesus dramatically left his disciples 40 days after the resurrection. But he left them with, with kind of lots ringing in their ears and rattling around in their heads. During that almost six-week period, he convinced them that he, that he really was back from the dead. He was alive. And during those 40 days, he also taught them, as we discovered last week, about the kingdom of God. But he also revealed to them what was going to happen next. The gift that his father had promised was going to come. But when? Well, not telling you. And so they have to wait. And we find the disciples in this kind of waiting room with a number of other people. But they're not just sitting around waiting, kind of twiddling their thumbs, doing nothing, navel-gazing. There is an active quality to their waiting. And so it says they are joining together constantly in prayer. So they're prepared. They're expectant. They're ready. But no idea when it's going to happen. And then it does. And Jesus is true to his word. The Holy Spirit comes, but his arrival and his impact is remarkable and life-changing, not only for these first disciples, but also for all of those who have chosen to follow him subsequently. And that includes many, probably most of us here in this church this morning. And so what I want to do is look at and remind you about how this gift, this promised gift, the Holy Spirit enhances, confirms, inspires, and empowers. So let's read the first 13 verses of Acts 2, but rather than stand, as we normally do for the public reading of God's Word, I'd like you to just keep your seats this morning because I would like to talk our way through the text. So verse 1. And as I say, if you can see a copy, share with someone beside you, look it up on your smartphone. Uh, here we go. Verse 1, Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came. Now the day of Pentecost was this annual feast that took place 50 days after Passover. It was a pilgrimage festival where people traveled to a central location. They all came to Jerusalem to celebrate the completion of the grain harvest and also to mark the giving of the law to Moses on Sinai. And so the city, Jerusalem, where the disciples were kind of waiting and praying, this city is heaving with people who have all congregated together to celebrate Pentecost. Verse 1 again. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, who, who's the all? It's a little unclear. But most people think if you glance back at verse 15 of the first chapter, it says that there was a group of believers numbering about 120. So you have 120, let's say, locked down, waiting, praying. Verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That's so hard for us to imagine 
what that must have been like. It all happened instantly. There's no warning. There's no lead-in. Suddenly, they all hear a recognizable sound. They see a strange sight. And they discover a multilingual speaking ability. And whatever was going on, bizarre that it was, the key issue or the central point is that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is important. The Holy Spirit has been present and active ever since the beginning of time as we know it. He was there at creation. Verse 2, Genesis 1, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. The Spirit is there in various ways in different people's lives throughout the Old Testament. He was there at the birth of Jesus. He was there during the life of Jesus. He was with the disciples. But in Acts 2, we confront a new dimension of the Holy Spirit's presence and activity. He comes in a new way and he invades He invades the lives of all these early Christians. And the reference to wind and fire is so important because it helps us understand, well, what does this actually mean? So you're probably aware that the Greek and Hebrew words for spirit can also mean wind or breath, pneuma, ruach. And they imply this this kind of fresh blast of life, renewing life and energy. And therefore, this sound that they hear that sounds like a violent wind creates the idea as the Spirit comes and fills these Christian disciples that God was injecting, God was breathing, God was blowing a new dynamic dimension of life into their lives. It's a bit like that powerful scene in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, where God said, I will put my spirit, I will put my breath in you, and you will live. And so for these believers in Jerusalem, this experience meant that they were now more alive than they'd ever been before. There was an added vibrancy to their spiritual lives. The Holy Spirit enhances life, takes it to a whole other level. And then fire. Fire in Scripture is a symbol so often of the presence of God. And so, for example, the burning bush, Exodus 3, symbol that God is there. The pillar of fire, Exodus 13, a symbol God is guiding, God is present, God is with. And therefore, these things that seemed like tongues of fire are at one very definite level a sign that the presence of God is now a constant with every single disciple of Jesus. Jesus may have gone, but the Holy Spirit is now with and now in as a tangible reminder that they're not alone. They're ever present helper, comforter, counselor, and guide is with them. And so the Spirit enhances life, takes it to a whole other level. The Holy Spirit also confirms God's intimate, personal presence in each of our lives. Now, the exact 
nature and, and implication of this new dimension and presence is then kind of spelt out in the rest of Acts, as we're going to discover, and also throughout the New Testament. But let's go back to this kind of third aspect of the original phenomenon. So there's wind, the breath of God, taking life to a new level. There's fire, symbol of God's presence. The intimate, personal presence of God is now with them as never before. Then you have this phenomenal event where they begin to speak in other tongues or languages. Look at verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So clearly these tongues are very different from the spiritual gifts of tongue, gift of tongues that's referred to in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. It's not that. But this ability to speak in the heart language of this international crowd gathered in Jerusalem is still an unnatural or rather a supernatural event. These disciples haven't been to language classes And that's why the final phrase of verse 4 is so critical in our understanding of what's going on here. Because it says, as the Spirit enabled them. They could only do this because the Spirit of God empowered them to do this. So in Luke 24, just before his ascension, Jesus has said to the disciples, listen, stay in Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts 1, as we looked at last week, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so here, as the disciples open their mouths and start speaking in tongues and languages, as they're left in no doubt that this wait is over, the power has been received, it's flowing through their veins, the promise has been fulfilled. Yes, they hear the sound like a violent wind, they see what seemed like tongues of fire. Could have been mistaken, yes, but when they opened their mouths, there's no question, this is real. This has to be the Holy Spirit. This is powerful in every sense of the word. And so people sat up and took notice because they could say, listen, we, we heard what we think was a sound of a violent when we saw what we seemed to be tongues of fire, but, but listen to us speak. And people sat up and took notice. And in fact, this ability on the disciples' part took everyone by surprise, which is apparent from the first two words of verse 7. Look at it. Utterly amazed. The crowd are astonished by what they're hearing. As I'm sure the disciples were. I think it would have been great if, if, if Dr. Luke, the author of Acts, had inserted some comment about the disciples' reaction to their newfound talent. But he doesn't. Can you imagine being able to speak fluent Cantonese without ever having studied it? That's what was going on at this moment. Not not Cantonese, but some other language. That was what was going on. And it wasn't just anyone who was speaking this language, these languages. Look at verse 7 again. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them hears us, hears them in our native language? You see, what caused such a stir and a deep intake of breath was the specific people in question who were doing it. Aren't aren't they just Galileans? Aren't they just that kind of uncultured, uncouth bunch? 
not renowned for their learning or grasp of their own language, never mind anyone else's. And so the question asked in verse 8 appears to be a fair one. How is it? How is it that we're, we're standing here and we're hearing Galileans speak in our heart language? How's that happening? And whatever else is going on, we once again come across an idea that tends to crop up in Scripture on a regular basis. That God challenges stereotypes. He rattles our tendency to pigeonhole particular human beings. God uses the unexpected and the unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. To take the lead at key moments. To achieve great things. It's Galileans who are speaking multilingually. And that throws everyone. You see, when the Holy Spirit fills a life, that person is empowered to do incredible things irrespective of their background, upbringing, social status, intellectual understanding, or the prejudiced opinion of others. And in verses 9 and 10, we then have this list of people groups who are impacted. Whether the disciples could speak all of the languages or whether only certain disciples spoke certain languages is unclear. It doesn't matter. But what's absolutely critical to observe and note is the content of what they were saying. So, So they're not just hearing them speak in their heart language. Look at what they're actually hearing them say. Verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The literal translation of verse 11, as I understand it, it says, they were speaking the greatness of God. And you see, one of the key signs of a spirit-filled life or or a spirit-filled church is a tangible desire and joy in declaring the wonders of God. Spirit-filled Christians express the greatness of God. They affirm what he has done. They celebrate his characteristics. They praise him verbally. They do it in prayer. They do it as they speak to others, as they speak with others. They do it when they gather together like this and express their appreciation of God in song. You see, the Holy Spirit inspires praise. I suppose the question is, and that, you know, the challenge is in a sense, How's how's our praise been this morning? I mean, we have sang some incredible words that Stephen has led us in this morning. Have we been inspired in our praise of the greatness of God? Because it's a sign, a tangible, visible, real sign of spirit-filled Christians are people who speak the wonders of God in word and soul. And the crowd in Jerusalem that day listened to believers speaking their own heart language, declaring the greatness of God. And what happens? There's a reaction. There's a variety of reactions. And these are the general reactions that that we encounter today. You see, whenever we speak of God, people respond in different ways. Look at verse 12 amazed and perplexed. And there's no doubt that most of us have come across those responses. Some people are taken by the wonders of God. They're amazed by the wonders of God. 
They're captivated. They're struck by the wonders of God. Whereas there's others who are just left puzzled. They're just left confused, scratching their heads. Just don't get it. And therefore, a question like the one we find at the end of verse 12 is a familiar one. What, what, what does this mean? Well, it's a good question. What does it mean? And for those people who are kind of perplexed and confused and don't get it, they need somebody to explain it. And so Peter, in this situation, stands up and explains exactly what is going on to those who are genuinely interested. And we need people who can do that. We need to be people who can do that. We need to be people who can articulate the wonders of God, who can explain them and express them and share them. But there was another reaction. And we've all come across this one. Verse 13, some, however, made fun of them. Ridicule and rejection are not foreign concepts to us as Christians, or or at least they shouldn't be. There are still many people today who react this way to the gospel. To any context where God is declared and exalted. And it shouldn't surprise us. It should disappoint us, yes. It can hurt us sometimes, yes. But it should never take us by surprise when people reject us and ridicule us. It's interesting this week. I I don't know if you... Is it Ewan Murray who plays for Scotland? one of the kind of scrum guys, Johnny, not right? Uh, Johnny's a rugby player, you can tell. But Ewan Ewan Murray came to faith in 2005, 2006, following a pretty serious collision. Hopefully that's not him. Uh, Following a pretty serious collision in a game of rugby, which led him on a bit of a journey where he discovered God, and and he committed his life to Jesus. (laughs) It's lovely, Emma. We're going to all sing along. Where is that? But he, but he committed his life to Jesus in 2000. <laughs> oh, I just love it. Two, 2005, 2006. But he, he made a decision then, or he wrestled with the whole idea, would he play on a Sunday? And many of you will know that he has made a choice of decision. Isn't it? Whatever we think about this. He has made the choice, he's made the decision not to play on a Sunday. And therefore, as one of the key members of the Scotland uh, International Squad, he's not playing this afternoon, as it said on the radio, for religious reasons. It's been really interesting, the response this week to that. Some are amazed. Some are perplexed. Some people just ridicule him. People are going to react like that whenever we stand up and say who we are and what we believe. By the way, tonight, as we think about this rule of life, uh, we're going to be looking at the whole issue of Sabbath and how we write that into a rule of life and what that looks like in a rule of life to actually practice Sabbath, which is all about a day and an attitude. Right from the start of the church, this whole idea of being rejected was their experience It's a theme that we're going to find right throughout Acts. It appears in every chapter apart from two, three and ten. It's the only chapters where there's no rejection. In Acts 2, those who rejected this message and mocked the disciples, they thought they were were drunk. And today as we stand up for what we believe and affirm the goodness and greatness of God, there is going to be people who think we're off our heads. And we're just making it all up. We're not thinking straight. 
But it shouldn't stop us, and it didn't stop the disciples, and so Peter addressed the crowd, and he spoke from Scripture, and ultimately he drew attention to Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And here was Peter fulfilling or living out his commission. You will receive power. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power, and you'll be my witnesses. And here's Peter doing exactly that, speaking boldly for Jesus. And so another clear indicator of a Spirit-filled life, and we're nearly done is one that points to Jesus. In our own strength, that is virtually impossible. But Pentecost reminds us that we are filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers our witness. And as we leave here in a while, let's not forget that's who and that's what we are. We're Christ's witnesses. The kind of question that that leaves us with is, Jesus says, you will be empowered and you will be my witnesses. The kind of question that leaves us with is, are we good witnesses or are we not? We are witnesses. Our lives speak something. They communicate something. The question we've got to wrestle with is, am I a good witness for Jesus? Or does my life send out all kinds of confusing signals? But back to the diversity of people all being able to understand what was said. Yes, it's unique. But it's highly significant in the big story of the Bible. And I've mentioned this before during our Essential Word series. Genesis 11 tells the tragic story of Babel. The place where God confused the language of the whole world and created major misunderstanding. But as we read Acts 2, we sense a deliberate and dramatic reversal of what happened at Babel. Because in Jerusalem at Pentecost, the language barrier is supernaturally overcome. There's mutual understanding. And what happens? 3,000 people, different nations, language, cultures are drawn together into the church. As a result of Pentecost, there's now potential unity as people respond to the good news that's proclaimed to them in the power of the Spirit in their own heart language. And so as Christians living in the wake of Pentecost and therefore filled with and filled by the Holy Spirit, because every Christian is, those tongues of fire separated on everyone who was there. Every Christian is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And therefore we are Christ's witnesses in word, in deed. And as we declare the wonders of God, as we tell the story of Jesus, we believe that by his spirit, God does bring understanding. It's not us that does it. God does bring understanding to people who respond from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that Christ's church, which was launched in Acts, can be built right across our planet today. Why God does it this way empowers us to be Christ's witnesses. It's over to us. It's our responsibility. It's our mandate. It's our commission to go and make disciples. Why God didn't choose a different way, a better way. This is the way he's chosen. And so as we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit, who fuels our up, in, and out relationships, Let's give thanks for how he enhances our lives, confirms God's intimate and immediate presence in our lives, 
inspires praise on our lips, and how He empowers our witness in here, out there, and like Margot and Eduardo, to the ends of the earth. And if as a Christian, you sense a need, as I said, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. But the Bible does explicitly teach us that we need to pray for more of the Holy Spirit. We've said this. We need to go on being filled with his Holy Spirit. And so if you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you sense a need for a fresh filling of God's Holy Spirit because you have lost an awareness of these four realities. Your life doesn't feel enhanced. You're not particularly aware of God's immediate or intimate presence. Maybe even come here this morning and quite honestly, your praise has not been from the heart. And you're struggling to be a witness for Christ. If you need a fresh filling of God's Holy Spirit, then after a moment's silence, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to sing a prayer. And I'm just going to invite you to ask the Spirit of the living God to fall afresh in you.